To the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm the writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. I think I um, I may be imagining this, PJ. You're going to correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> I think I saw your man, Steve Jackson. Uh, at the Games Expo I went to a few weeks ago. It wouldn't surprise me. I know that he and Ian Livingstone, the two co-creators of the Fighting Fantasy brand, do frequent games conventions when they can. Do they get on? Yeah, yeah, they do. Oh, cool, cool. Yeah, no, I'm just wondering. I don't know. I literally know nothing about them other, other than it would be very fitting if a creative partnership now hate each other you know what i mean that just seems to be the way it always goes last i heard they were co-writing another book together for the 40th anniversary of fighting fantasy next year 2022 wow well there we go may not be happening now because of covid and all that but yeah that's the last i heard they were doing a a new Warlock of Firetop Mountain Adventure, co-write, co-writing, which will be the first time they've co-written a book since the very first fighting fantasy, The Warlock of Firetop Mountain, in 1982. Hmm. Well, if anyone if anyone listening isn't familiar with fighting fantasy, could you could you give a quick primer? Uh, Single-player Dungeons & Dragons. Basically, it's, it's a book that you play, you know, those game books, so like a choose-your-own-adventure, but you also have stats, and you roll dice and fight monsters, and you can die by just losing a fight in combat and rolling your dice really badly. When when did the first one come out? Uh, the first one, basically, they, they founded Games Workshop as well, and they were sort of importing and selling Dungeons & Dragons products, and they sort of decided to put together a how-to-role-play manual, and that then turned into this adventure that they were just they would write a book that guided one person through an adventure which then became the warlock of firetop mountain the first fighting fantasy book that they then released in uh, 1982 ah. and yeah no sorry it's weird I, I, this isn't this is barely an anecdote it's barely a connection but like um i just realized that like games workshop seems seems to be popping up in my life a lot this week because <laughs> um uh, Lucy's in the process of uh, rearranging her end of the office. So um, I'm sitting here right now. Her desk is like diagonally across from me. But um, we've just got like rubbish like scattered across the floor, like everywhere. Uh, it's going against every fibre in my being. Um, but uh, yeah, she's she's having to get rid of some old um, 
uh, Warhammer models, which she was going to paint, but they're a bit battered and bruised now. And also, I was chatting to uh, a fulfillment man this week, a chap who does fulfillment, who was just, who was, I won't name him, but he was just the loveliest man in the world, like so helpful. And uh, he gave me like his life story and he was like, I've been an audiologist and I've managed a games workshop once upon a time. I was like, hey, there we go. I'm surrounded, good people. I'm surrounded by good people. And now he's a fulfillment man who fulfills your dreams. Yes, he used to fulfill your small plastic and liquid cement needs. Uh, Now he... Well, as you say, dreams. He's in the industry of dreams, which aren't we all, PJ? Because we, you know, comics, and we had a very long conversation off air uh, about uh, about gaming. Yeah. So clearly, that's that's another that's another podcast we can discuss at some point. That was solid re- gold material that none of you are ever <laughs> going to hear again. But <laughs> I should also say uh, because I think, although I could be mistaken, I think this is the first time we've ever recorded in the evening. Is that true? I think this is the latest we've ever done a record of one of these. And here's a little bit of inside baseball for you. I'm in my pyjamas. Okay. Had nice. dinner just before we recorded. Fancy an elasticated waistband. Here we are. <laughs> well, uh, to, you know, part, part of the veil on my life, PJ, um, I always wear sweatpants nowadays because <laughs> I live at home. And there's a level of comfort I'm just not willing to compromise on. Uh, and because it's the evening, and I've also technically uh, got the week off, um, I thought I'd pour myself a little whiskey what? for our recording. Yeah, so uh, this is like um, JLA cask Nikes, you know. We've we've got the elasticated waistbands, we've cracked open the alcohol. I <laughs> mean, you say we, I've got work in the morning, so I'm just drinking Coke without any uh, other Coda beverages are available, without any... <laughs> alcohol of any kind in it so well i mean you know at your age pj i mean it's you, now now you wanna... <laughs> i cannot i don't even know why i've started doing this that's very cruel <laughs> like i'm i'm yeah uh, officially like middle age now so i have no yeah i have no recourse i don't know why i'm bullying you i'm sorry it's because i am the grumpy old man i think you know, my wife tells me I'm old all the time. I'm only two years older than her, but it's just a thing. And so does literally everyone else I know. So, hmm. well, uh, you know what will make you feel younger, PJ? Is it reading a comic from the 90s? Uh, it's reading a comic from, what, 20... Wait, I can do this. 23 years ago? Ah, the good old days. Lucy's cousins are younger than this series, and they all have jobs. <laughs> no, surely yeah, they're all true. like toddlers. No, no. Uh, <laughs> there are people born, people who were born after this comic who was released, whose children are older than us. Like that's yeah, that's how old this series is, PJ. Well, it's incredible. And uh, now I'm just going to turn off my microphone and go cry in a corner for a bit. So, <laughs> Well, don't cry, PJ. Uh, why don't you recap what happened in that issue of Starman? That will cheer you up. Nothing of note. Nothing of note. <laughs> Future Starman met present day. No, old-timey World War II Starman said, Oh, I don't like you and I'm evil, but I can't kill you, and took his kryptonite and ran away. That was it. 
Oh, also well, Green Lantern found out Starman's a traitor. Uh, y- yes, which was a weird, a weird beat, just the way that kind of felt. Now we can blame a lot of it on the trade paperback yeah. and the decisions that were made. Because obviously, like, weren't there like sixty-four different titles associated with this, or something mad like that? It was a pretty big event. It was every book DC put out that month. So yeah, I, I would, I think sixty-four is about what. Yeah, I think there's like sixty monthly books plus the four issues of the mini. And despite the astonishing efforts of um, Christopher Monica Murphy, who's who's uh, kind of written in with his quest to to read every associated issue of DC One Million, we will not be doing that. And maybe that's the cowards option, but um, <laughs> at our age, I think we need to savor every every minute we have really on the planet. So. We're just going to be blazing ahead with what is in the trade paperback. Yeah, so, and also I'm apologies. pretty sure some of those comics are going to be terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, in a, in a in a sample size that big, I mean statistically, that is that is a chance. I should say, PJ, just to, just to uh, kind of uh, pick you up on something you said a few minutes ago, we don't know it's kryptonite. It, it's definitely kryptonite. We listener, ignore PJ. We do not yet know that the kryptonite is kryptonite so just bear that in mind you know at least look surprised when it when it pops up i am 100% sure that the kryptonite is kryptonite um but pj aside from that weird scarman interlude um in a nutshell what has happened so far in the actual main <laughs> 1 million storyline well the justice legion a from many many years in the future have turned up and said oh hey we're going to celebrate superman coming out of the sun and superman's all like wait me in the sun what no and so the jla i said that in a jla what what is wrong with me evening recordings i shouldn't do them the uh, justice league of our era or the 90s have gone to the future to do like olympics type events and celebrate superman coming out of the sun and then it all went wrong. There was a big virus. Meanwhile, Vandal Savage kidnapped some Titans, put them in red rocket, no, rocket red suits, and blew up uh, the small country of Montevideo with them. Indeed. That was a I've terrible also... recap. I apologise. Uh, it's all right, but like I said, PJ, blame the elasticated waistband. <laughs> you know, clearly we needed, we needed a belt to, like, force blood into our brains. Um... I've also discovered that laughing while sipping whiskey is not a good idea. <laughs> Does it go up your nose? It goes places it shouldn't. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this issue we're about to read is actually... Um, this is, sorry, this is DC 1 million 2. Yes. Is it not? Like So if you were collecting, if uh, cash your mind back to November 98, not even a summer event... A winter comic event. Whatever you were collecting, say you were collecting um, young heroes in love. Uh, this is from the core uh, DC one million miniseries. So, yeah, picture that in your head. This is issue two of that. Yeah, and it opens with narration from Blue Beetle, which I really like. I'm a big fan of Blue Beetle, and it's lovely to just have him show up like this. Yeah, um, and I think um, absolutely no need for his inclusion at all. And yet, I think it 
I think Grant Morrison had a bit of a soft spot for him and wanted to shine a little light on him. And I think that an event book like this, which is, you know, I think Morrison was very aware this isn't just a JLA book. This is a DC book incorporating all of the DC universe at the time. And so it's nice and a chance then for them to be able to bring in these other characters that they like playing with, but they don't really have room for on the league at the moment. But because this isn't technically a JLA story, it's an everybody story. Just throw them in. I mean, isn't technically, not to split hairs, but isn't technically like everyone in the league to some extent? Like, if you've served on the league, aren't you always like a reserve agent, I suppose? Yeah, but at the same time, there are characters in this who at this point had never been on the JLA. Uh, so, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, uh, sorry, we will get into the story, I swear. But, like, Morrison, for a good few years, was kind of on retainer with DC. I want to say kind of like throughout the, the 2000s as... I don't know what their title was exactly or whether it was even an official title, but they were um, uh, like almost like a, a creative consultant. It's like they, they had free access to the DC catalogue. And I mean, Seven, Seven Soldiers of Victory. It, it was entirely about dusking off old, unused characters, finding a breathing a uh, new life into them, finding like a new angle to make them interesting. And then almost like... Now they're revitalized. They could be handed over to a different creator. Uh, I don't know how much was going on with Blue Beetle at the time, but this kind of strikes me a bit like that in miniature. Like Morrison just going, oh, who can I play with? Oh, I like that one. I'll pluck them out. And I'll, I'll just do a really interesting take on the character. I think that a lot of Blue Beetle at this point, this would have been just around a time where mostly it was just guest <clears throat> guest starring in things and... This is obviously the uh, the Ted Cord Blue Beetle uh, predates the Jaime Reyes Blue Beetle by a few years yet, um, but yeah, I think he was just guest starring in in books here and there. I don't think formerly known as the Justice League had started yet, which really gave mm. the Blue Beetle Booster Gold pairing a, a shot in the arm um, until they then killed Blue Beetle at the beginning of Infinite Crisis. He did fifty two the event come after Infinite Crisis. Yeah, it did. That, then that would make sense, because I believe Booster Gold is is sad in 52. Yes. Because Ted, Ted is dead. Yeah. Cool. And uh, Ted Cord, or, uh, uh, or um, the Blue Beetle, uh, very much uh, Owl Man. No, not Owl Man, you Burke. Night Owl from Watchmen. <laughs> Uh, the original basis for Night Owl. Yeah. Uh, and um, I, I I cannot remember for life of me the name of the first Blue Beetle from the 30s and 40s. No, me neither. The one who actually had the scarab. And yeah. was just one of those sort of pulp hero characters who sort of then became a superhero when they came along. Yeah. I think that, that character does have a, a small appearance in Mark Wade and uh, Barry Kitson's JLA Year One. But uh, that is about the only comic I've ever read that that character's in. A fun... I always thought it was a fun gimmick, though. The idea that, like, here is a a magical artefact that will give you legitimate superpowers. 
uh, only he loses it or misplaces it or something. I think and it's just so... that he can't get it to work. I think it's oh, Ted's okay, thing. okay. But then he ends up using his keen scientific mind to make crime-fighting devices. He's a good, he's a good accessory kind of hero. Like he's got, he's got a cool flying ship. You know, he has gadgets, he has devices. I kind of like him. I like him. He's a, he's basically a happier Batman without the fighting skills, and therefore <laughs> is actually one of the more relatable heroes in the DC universe. Yeah, I like him because he's very mediocre. And I mean that in like the best possible way. I think that's in Morrison's JLA, so we will get to it. But there's an appearance later on where someone says, oh, you've, you've managed to fit into your costume again. And he actually says, I'm wearing a girdle. <laughs> yes. And f- in fact, I know the exact moment you're referencing. And that was my first ever introduction to Blue Beetle. Ah. <laughs> and because, here's a fun fact, because I had no idea who any of these characters were, um, I got confused and thought that Booster Gold was the same character as Animal Man. I can see that. Because they had goggles. Yeah. Not too dissimilar costumes. No, and, you know, they've both got the hair. Yeah. You know, the greatest... uh, Second to Grifter's Mask, the greatest innovation in superhero costuming ever. I mean, are you trying to annoy me? I mean, succeeding. Yes, well, yes. I Uh, um, I quit. (laughs) Okay, okay, well, look, I think we could both agree that (laughs) The Cyclops 90s, I'm wearing a Wongzi, but it doesn't cover my hair, is a hell of a look. It's the pinnacle of of Cyclops designs. Nothing he's had since has quite reached those heights. No, indeed. And uh, it was so good that uh, when uh, Jim Lee was doing the Wildcats, um, he did it again for Spartan, (laughs) (laughs) who is basically Cyclops uh, under a different name. Um, but yeah. Anyway, I'm sorry, PJ. We we were meant to be talking about the issue, weren't we? Yeah, and uh, one little touch I like here at the beginning of Blue Beetle's narration is it's sort of set up as if he's recording essentially a diary entry. Uh, he's accessing the Blue P, the Blue P, not Blue Peter. No, that's something else entirely. <laughs> I'm not explaining that reference no. for our international American listeners. listeners. Look it up. Uh, the Blue Beetle electronic notepad password car F re. Which I believe is is a name related to the Scarab. Mm. Yeah, it's the name of the pharaoh mm. or god that the power came from. Yeah, uh, which is kind of cool. Although, oh, actually, no, I'm, I'm guessing I'm guessing the general public would not know the source of his powers. I was just trying to think that might not be the most secure password. <laughs> but but there we go. But yeah, he's basically uh, flying a, a probe into Montevideo, which is now on fire, basically. He describes a, a massive crater. Jean made his announcement to the world media and then walked back into the flames, either ignoring the fire. So Beetle's not sure if, if he's deliberately enduring it or if he's maybe cracked a bit from the shock of what's happened. And this is a direct callback to the prologue in part one, mm. which um, you may have forgotten about, uh, particularly with that Starman interlude. But um, technically, we started on day three of our adventure, uh, where Zariel and Plastic Man were watching or failed to watch the Monitor Womb and then saw that uh, Montevideo had been 
essentially nuked. So we're back in the present day now, I suppose. Yes, yeah, we we do have a brief bit at the beginning that just says on the third day. So this is that same point we saw in issue one. And uh, while Beetle's probe is flying into the devastation, he's gone back to his big bug ship, which we don't see in this issue, and that makes me sad, uh, <laughs> to get his radiation armour. Yeah, and uh, we are getting um, a kind of drone's eye view of the destruction. And, you know, full credit to uh, Val Cimex or Cimex. Um, really nice kind of shot of this harrowing level of destruction. Uh, but also um, drawn in such a way that it resembles like a kind of um, fisheye camera because it's coming from a drone. Like it's actually dis- distorted slightly by the lens. Yeah, it's a really cool visual. I have to say, I do really like the art in this issue. I think it's, I think it's excellent. Oh, I agree. I agree. Like it is, you know, it's funny, isn't it? Like um, comic art in many ways is sniffed at a bit in certain circles as not being real art, mm. quote unquote. And this is undoubtedly like of the medium. Like this is comic art, but I think this is a particularly fine example of it. Like. Yeah, I think I think this is great actually. Like the conveyance of like motion and the setting. Yeah, full 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 kudos to the art team. I think this is beautiful. Yeah, and then we turn the page, and again the art is just stunning. Really selling the the devastation and how grim this scene is. While while Beatles' narration continues, basically saying, you know, the the fallout plume is one hundred fifty one miles long, fifteen miles wide. Firestorm and the Ray are in there because they can handle radiation. They're doing what they can. But Firestorm, he lets us know here a key piece about Firestorm's background where Firestorm used to be bonded. It's two people bonded to make uh, Firestorm. One of them was a scientist, Professor Stein. And uh, Beetle lets us know here Professor Stein is no longer part of the equation. Firestorm's powers are very much physics based, so it makes it difficult for him. Yeah, and again, I, I it's a small thing. And I, I, I know Morrison does it many times elsewhere but one thing i really like is when they have a character using their powers in a really interesting and unusual way and i like the idea that here we have this real world catastrophe essentially a nuclear bomb and of course we're sending in two heroes that have the power to manipulate the electromagnetic spectrum or matter to deal with radiation i I love that kind of stuff Mm. Although can the ray do that? I guess I guess gamma radiation would be on the electromagnetic spectrum, so I'm guessing ray can do that. Yeah, and it's it's also you know with this kind of massive fires everywhere, he's also got sort of some sort of control over heat and light as well. So, hmm. Oh, and although um, uh, uh, Ted or Blue Beetle is saying that despite that, despite the efforts of Ray and Firestorm, we need Superman and we need Green Lantern. And I really like that because obviously Superman, you always want Superman. But I think this is a slight nod to just how bloody powerful Kyle is, Mm -hmm. even if he might not himself recognize it. Because yes, Kyle could probably, with a bit of focus, generate something to deal with the radiation like or you know to to not bring back the dead obviously but to kind of quell the destruction in this place like i love that 
Yeah, and I also like that it's it's sort of an acknowledgement that there is a tier system, you know, not intentionally so, but there is one among the superheroes on the DC Earth, and they know it. Uh, <laughs> and again, I, it's, it's it's a small thing, and maybe I am probably reading too much into it, but again, just kind of ties into this idea of Kyle being essentially the protagonist of the entire series, mm-hmm. and just Morrison's love for Kyle because. Yeah, I don't think he would ever consider himself as being, like, if not in the same tier as Superman, but, like, very close. Yeah. Like, it's wild. But uh, Beetle's probe enters the crater, and he says nothing could have survived in there, but then he sees people in there, and he just says, who are these scary people? (laughs) And it's Justice Legion A standing in the centre of the crater, They've all still got the the black blotches on them from the virus that was also unleashed at the end of issue one. But Superman just says, Justice Legion A stand assembled. God help the living. And we get the title, The Day After Tomorrow, and the credits. Grant Morrison writer, Val Semick's penciler, Prentice Rollins inker, Kenny Lopez letterer, Pat Garrahy colorist, Heroic Age separator, Tony Bedard was the associate editor, and Dan Raspler was the editor. And I'm going to say the font for the credits there, not great. (coughs) Um, no, it's maybe it's some interesting lettering choices, which I, I, I don't mean to sniff at, but I, I think um, I like what they did with Blue Beetle's captions, but I think in a couple of places it's a, it's a little tricky to read. Although I think Morrison did dump them with a lot of text to kind yes. of get in. Yeah. Because Morrison is a wordy person. <laughs> like myself, actually, in, in many ways. Um... But yeah, but then then we see we see your boy uh, Blue Beetle. Oh, we do see his ship behind him. Yay! Yeah, I had wondered. I didn't. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I'll be honest with you, PJ, because I'm an idiot. It's taken me countless read-throughs to realise that the little thing we saw flying across the landscape on page one was not the Beetle ship or the bug or whatever it's called. Uh, it was actually a drone. I, I I always got confused from even though he was talking about a drone, I was like, is that a weird perspective shot? Is it the big ship? I'm I'm an idiot. It's it's he calls it the baby bug. The baby bug is adorable. Um and uh yeah, we see Blue Beetle. He's wearing a he's wearing a mask, uh and presumably his radiation suit, uh, because he's only human and this place is hella radioactive. Uh, and he's basically uh, filing a report and sending it to um, Oracle. Yeah, uh, he's also engaging audio, so now he can hear what the Justice Legion are saying to each other. And the first thing he hears is our man saying, my fault, a million lives, John, what have I done? Uh, yes, and of course, that is the hard John, not the soft John, because he's talking to John Fox, the Flash of Tomorrow. Yes. And, um, yeah, and Flash is being a bit snarky, and he says, look, we don't need guilt, our man, we need solutions. It's a very Star Trek kind of, um, damn it, damn it, our man, we don't need guilt, we need solutions. Um, But our man also says, Solaris sent the virus back in time through me, he infiltrated my programming, and I didn't know, I wasn't ready for the powers I've been granted. And... Again, just dropping here that all of a sudden the good guys are now aware that Solaris, who they were unaware in the previous issue, had gone bad again, is the bad guy. And just slightly clumsy, I think. It just it's like, we're just going to tell you right now. And I, I, I don't know. I wanted a better reveal than that. Yeah. Um, 
I have some thoughts on that, and I'd, uh, maybe I'll save them until the end of mm-hmm. the issue. But yeah, I think that's kind of endemic of a lot of one million. Yeah. <laughs> kind of like, yeah. Um, really smooth moments going hand in hand with some really kind of clunky moments. Um, but yeah, but basically this is uh, a little bit of exposition through uh, the medium of our man uh, gnashing his teeth and kind of like racked with guilt. Because uh, he basically says, like, you know, my time powers have been overridden. Uh, we can't travel back in time. Uh, and apparently they have 24 hours or the virus will destroy their minds. And again, I don't entirely know where we learned that or if this is the first time we're meant to be learning that. I, I guess we're, we're meant to assume that the because they're the Justice Legion, they've just been working shit out between issues, I suppose. Yeah, probably. I mean, it may also have been in some of the issues that aren't in this trade. Like, in the next bit, our man says, wait, John, what about your time travel gauntlets? And the Flash just says, well, they were stolen, so we can't. And that's just dropped in there, too. And maybe that's part of the Flash one million. I don't know. Maybe so. I mean, maybe that's Morrison trying to tie up loose ends, because I guess John Fox was a time traveller anyway. Yeah. Uh, after his And after his appearance in the pages of Flash, so... Yeah, maybe just covering his ba- covering their bases in case um, <laughs> I don't know, in case they got a, a reader's letter or something. <laughs> uh, but then Superman of the future reappears and he says, "Oh, I've been running calculations, several hundred possible scenarios." And the Flash says, "Several hundred? You should be able to do several billion." Which is where we get Superman saying, "Yeah, but we've got a super sun in the future, and this is a regular sun here, and I'm not as powerful." <laughs> Pure Morrison. <laughs> Pure Morrison, that. Um, yeah, and uh, basically, uh, uh, future Superman or uh, Cal Kent is feeling sympathy or pity even for the Justice League because they are trapped in the future and they would be absolutely defenseless against Solaris like because they are essentially cavemen by, by from their perspective. Uh, and then uh, Jean turns up, uh, kind of mirroring when last we saw him in the prologue of part one uh carrying a a desiccated corpse and um one can only assume still harrowed by this whole thing because he just he just demands an explanation he just in two speech bubbles just says explain solaris and i i love this is this is morrison again doing angry jean which we've only seen once or twice before but it's very consistent in the way Jean is when he's angry, oh as written by Morrison. If you go back to when he was fighting Asmodel, he wasn't yes, saying oh my a God. lot. It, yeah. And even though this is a much quieter moment, he's not in combat, it it feels like a similar anger. Um I know I know I was just saying that like there's there are some issues with one million. Uh it also has some of my favourite Jean moments, which mm. are I think just brilliant. And of course, yeah, you're right. I mean, going back to that angel storyline, when Jean just gets absolutely livid that he's just come up against some would-be, <laughs> would-be bad guys again, <laughs> and he's just like, I'm so tired of this shit. You know, <laughs> like literally, like, <laughs> when will you people stop? Yeah, um, yeah. Jean, the gentle giant, being furious is 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 a joy to behold. Um, but thankfully, uh, future Aquaman, with his uh, his natty blue skin, uh, basically uh, 
fills Jean in on what Solaris is. He is the tyrant's son, which again, it's a weird little beast because I know Morrison has used Solaris a lot in their kind of personal Superman mythology Mm. as kind of like the ultimate Superman villain. It's kind of weird in a way that they are, that Solaris is introduced kind in person or in planetary body, uh, kind of like in the closing pages of, of the previous issue. Then we get some reference to it in those tie-in issues, and now we're being explained to what Solaris is again. Yeah, it's Aquaman just again says, "Oh, it was Superman's greatest foe, stellar calculator." It's like we we know this, we've been told this now several times, and it does feel. A little unnecessary. You then get the beat, though, where Aquaman does say, we should have destroyed it. Sorry, John. It's going to kill your friends. They're already dead. And John is just like, no, they'll find a way. They always do. Uh, yeah, and I, I think uh, the weird thing is, it's like we've kind of been like told a lot about Solaris, but with the way the story is structured, we haven't been shown it. You know what I mean? Like, we've not seen anything to prove how big big and terrifying Solaris is. I feel like there's a scene missing. Like, I wanted that scene about why Solaris is terrible. I feel like that might that's my main criticism at this point of one million in total. There's a lot of tell, don't show. Mm. There are, there's a lot of good. Don't, yeah. don't, don't, don't give the impression that I'm entirely ragging on it. But yeah, a little chunky, clunky at the moment. Uh, but then, PJ... Uh, we go to one of Morrison's favourite characters, hmm. it's Steel on the moon. Yeah, and I do love this scene. Steel is also raging, uh, shouting at Barda. He's trying to get to a teleport pod. Barda isn't letting him, and he's saying, look, my family is down there. I have to go. And Barda says, if you set foot on the Earth, the virus is going to attack your armour instantly. So it's a simple decision. You're staying here. We need you here. And, uh, yeah, and Barda basically says, you know, if you raise that hammer against me, I will crush it, basically, in my hand. And I believe she Pla- could. I think she could. <laughs> um, Plastic Man is not helping. Yeah. Uh, he basically points out that the only black man on the team can't quit. It's an unwritten law. To which Steele says, I don't remember joining this group as the representative as every black man on Earth. Which um, is, I don't know, I think that's a, <laughs> it's a good way to... Um, have some light fun at the fact that um, representation on the league is not amazing. I also wonder if it's a reference to uh, the old Avengers uh, storylines from, I think it was in the 80s when the Falcon first joined, and he was literally put on there by Guy Rich to fill um, a diversity quota. And Falcon didn't want to be on the team, but he was sort of made to be on the team and wasn't allowed to quit. Do you remember... um... Um, in Busick's run on Avengers, which of course we talk about a lot uh, being published around the same time, there was a similar storyline where Busick drew attention to the fact that um, historically the Avengers had not had a very good, mm. uh, was not the most uh, diverse group of people, shall we say. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I seem to remember that being quite handled relatively well by Busick. Actually. Yeah, I think so. I think he drew attention to it a few times about how there weren't many minorities and it was often more men than women and. Yeah, I think Busick did a good job there. I wonder. I think this moment here from Morrison is more poking fun at that old Avengers storyline. But um, yeah, <laughs> Plastic Man's also turned into a fridge. Just uh... 
<laughs> it's also, um, yeah, again, Skeel, again, proving to be the heart and soul of the league. Uh, and uh, Morrison consciously or subconsciously realizing that he is such a wonderful addition and quite why future creators haven't followed in those footsteps, I do not know. Because mm. um, here we have the most unlikely assemble- assembly of the league you could imagine. Like, the league as it currently stands is Steel, Big Barda, Plastic Man, Zariel, and Huntress. Like, <laughs> that is wild. Nobody would buy that book. <laughs> I mean, you Steel- and I would. We would, yeah. <laughs> but Steel is... He is the hero. He's the Superman of the, you know of this moment. He is the brains, the heart, you know, the leadership. He's a great character. He's doing yeah. he's doing good work basically. Yeah, and he says here he made it quite clear when he first joined, which he did. His family comes first, and yeah, we had that moment in Secret Files and Origins too. Um, but then we get a lovely little speech from Zauriel just saying, "Look, the JLA is sworn to protect all humanity, not just those closest to us. Right now, the JLA." is us. I think we can best serve humanity by attempting to rescue our charter members from the 853rd century. And then, and this is brilliant, <laughs> we need your technical expertise, Steel. Build us a time machine. And quite rightfully, Steel goes, what are you talking about? <laughs> and he's right to say that, and yet, it's not as crazy as it would be, say, us telling, saying to Stephen Hawking's, build as a time machine like in the dc universe there is a precedent for this sort of yeah. thing I'm not saying it'd be easy but it is a legitimate field of science um yeah and zori was like yeah look and we will we, we'll do whatever it takes to help you but that's that's their mission basically we're going to build a time machine and we cut from there to more satellites in outer space which are broadcasting news stories about where are the justice league justice legion a have been sighted monte video stuff's gone down there and then it's we see a communique between oracle and the atom the atom mm. asking oracle to keep lines open and uh, he comes through the phone line and appears on oracle's desk in front of her and a fun little uh, kind of thing here is where Oracle is worried about preserving her identity and uh, Ray Palmer, the Atom, says don't worry, when I'm tiny, all faces look the same, they just look like big moons to me <laughs> and I have no idea whether that is true or not like I only, like it, both work Yeah, that could be a legitimate fact or he could just be gently lying to her because he's a nice guy and he probably wouldn't sell her identity yeah. anyway. But this is one, he's back in his classic costume. Because obviously last time we saw the Atom, he was in his 90s outfit. Now he's Oh, yes, of course. He's, he's back in the classic, fully head covered, no jacket, just the classic red and blue costume. Which, you know, I like both looks. I'm a fan of both looks for the Atom. I don't think I maybe have a favourite. Um, I yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I guess he's now been aged back up to full adulthood because he was de-aged for yeah. a while. Um, I think it's interesting. Like, I think this is ultimately a better costume because it's cleaner. Yeah, uh, it's it's more timeless, certainly. Like the other look at, is very nineties, but as far as nineties costumes go, I liked it. At the same time, I would say that 
The Atom's costume is fine for what it is because he's not a particularly flashy hero, but it's it's a pretty basic costume. Mm. Like, there's nothing about it that's ever really screamed to me, oh, this is an Atom or this is a shrinkable character or something. Like, it's just red and blue, you know. <laughs> it's got a bit of a triangular thing going on on his chest, but, like, I don't hate it. It's just like, oh, yeah, it's a very functional superhero costume. It's just red and blue. It's got an atom on his forehead. Yeah, but you'd have to be up close to see it, and he's often very small. (laughs) But he appears, and basically he's been consulting with Oracle about trying to sort out this virus. So he is going to shrink down and go inside Oracle's paws and swim through to try and find the virus inside her. And it turns into weird flirting between the two of them that I, I actually kind of enjoy. Um, I have to wonder, though, what the... What is the age difference, do you suppose? Because I, I'm assuming that, like, Oracle, having had a bit of a career as Batgirl, uh, is maybe, like, in her 20s? I... I feel like um when DC did the new 52 relaunch, they de-aged Barbara Gordon to make her Batgirl again. I feel... Because one... one it had been, I think the official law was that Superman had been around for 12 years at the point when they rebooted and then mm. shrunk everything down to five. So I, Barbara Gordon, I want to say, was in college, university to us British types, um, when yeah. she first became Batgirl. So oh. probably, and that would have only been one or two years, maybe two, three years. No, I think it was year two in Batman's career. So say this is 10 years, so maybe late 20s or early 30s, but I feel like the Atom's in his 40s. Okay, yeah, that's that's kind of that was kind of my read on it as well because we see in a later uh issue that he is a um he's a college obviously he's working as a as a as a lecturer as a, as a kind of college professor. Uh which is not to say that he uh, couldn't be a younger professor, but I'd always got the read that he was a little, a little older. Yeah, I, I would put him in his, in his forties, to be honest. Um, also, my favorite Atom costume is the Rock of Ages one. Just remembered. So, yes, yes, you're right. Oh God, you're, PJ, you're right. The clues were there. The <laughs> clues were always there. Morrison likes the Atom. You know. <laughs> oh God, yeah, he's got such a badass moment in Rock of Ages. How did I forget that? I mean, we've already covered think- it though. We can't really rehash it. Yeah, every time the atom pops up, I'm like, oh, it's weird to see the atom. Oh, it's weird. What's he <laughs> doing here? He's in it. He's in it all the bloody time. Um, but yes, yeah, so um, uh, the atom is flirting with Oracle while he shrinks and swims through her bloodstream. And um, he says, that, look, you know, I, I'm a physicist, Jim. I'm not a, not a vi- virologist, but I will at least describe what I'm seeing and pass it on to some experts. Um and yeah, uh, he basically says that, you know, you're being attacked by a machine. Like, the virus is an incredible molecular machine. And we see, like, these little devices literally, like, uh, tearing apart her white blood cells. Um, so, yeah, Ooh, got his job job cut out there, really. But we, we cut from there, because there's not enough going on in this book. We haven't seen enough superheroes <laughs> yet. We cut back to Montevideo, where... Firestorm and the Ray are flying along. Firestorm's pretty angry because 
they think it's the Justice Legion A that have blown Monte Video up. Uh, yes, and as a weird quirk, isn't the Ray's first name Ray? I think so, yeah. Yeah, okay, so Ray and Firestorm are blasting in. Um have to say, when I first encountered the Ray, or Ray, in the pages of JLA, uh, where he kind of makes a fairly minor cameo appearance in World War III, which is, mm. of course, my first volume, um, I just fell in love with this design. I was like, this is the coolest shit I've ever seen, this costume. Well, I think they both, you know, the Ray has a great look, that sort of all black surrounded by energy with gold bits of his costume as well but then firestorm's head is on fire and you cannot go wrong with a superhero whose head is on fire that's up there as well it really is god like i say grifter's mask the cyclops headpiece a flaming head or flaming hair and i would throw in there as well do you remember the beetle spider-man villain yes you know that weird mask he had? Oh yes, got those kind of like horns. Oh, good God! I mean, that got that was everywhere in the nineties. I mean, you like, are seventy five percent correct. <laughs> thank you, thank you, PJ. Well, um, that percentage will shrink as I add more things to this definitive <laughs> list. Uh, but God, yeah, that mask was everywhere. Honestly, if you found like an old John Locke notebook from when I was uh, in school. Pretty much every crappy teenage superhero I would doodle had that mask. That was just like the coolest mask in the world. I think it's why it was fairly quickly after the Beetle joined the Thunderbolts and became Mac, insert number here, depending on which armor he's wearing, (laughs) uh, and didn't have that mask anymore. Marvel pretty quickly introduced a new Beetle with the exact same costume. (laughs) Because it's just such a good design. Like, it's just such a good design. Um... Anyway, I'm sorry, that's completely irrelevant, though, uh, because um, uh, Firestorm and his top points for his flaming head, slightly less points for his baggy sleeves, um, they're like, enough talk, more action, we need to attack these people, because they are the bad guys, let's restrain them and get some answers. So yeah, and he- the Ray does make a mention to, you know, I've heard the virus makes you mad, it's not just the machines that are slowly going crazy, it's us. More clunky exposition in there, but I'll let it slide, because it's in a cool action shot. And also, Firestorm is kind of um, pulling rank because he has been a leaguer, whereas Ray hasn't, apparently. No, so Ray, like, has. Just... Ray has. Okay, okay. So is he just rubbing that in Ray's face? or is, I, I don't is... know. I think it's, I'm not really, really not sure. The Ray's definitely been in the Justice League. That gets referenced in Crisis Times 5. Okay. Yeah, weird. Um, yeah, yeah, he has actually. Yeah, of course he has. Although, was he in the trainee squad that Jean was running? Oh, maybe. The Justice League Extreme? Were they actually called Extreme? They may have been called Extreme. Or Task Force. I've got something in... That was 90s. I think Ray was in it in the 80s. I want to say something like the Detroit years. Ah. When, you know, your big hitters were characters like... Vibe and <laughs> Gypsy, you know. Yeah. Well, there we go. Anyway, either way, this is their shot at greatness and <laughs> they fluff it uh, because Firestorm 
lets out um, one of his kind of molecular blasts, uh, trying to turn the air into glass. And without even looking, without even turning around, that's how cool she is, Wonder Woman of the future deflects it with her shield, which, of course, is some kind of hyper-intelligent computer device talking to her and just um, reminds her that says, like, oh, it looks like we're being attacked. Um, Let's block it, basically. Yeah, and she thanks it, calls it Harmony. And I've only just noticed for the first time that Wonder Woman of the future has another of those absolutely wonderful superhero designs ankle wings <laughs> ankle wings they're up there they're up there I'd, I'd put them in the second tier they'd be in the top <laughs> 20 for me not in the top 10 personally <laughs> and also i think um this is the first time i've noticed and I, I can't quite tell if it's a quirk of this particular panel or not i'm just flicking back to see if it's anywhere else but you know all the characters keep oh no it is there there we go I've never noticed for PJ, but have you noticed that there are little light glares added digitally to all of the uh, future Justice League? Yes, I, I hadn't noticed it before, but now you've said it. Yeah, I can. Yeah. I had never noticed that because every flipping character in this series comments on the fact that the costumes of the future League are apparently made of some incredible material that we don't have in the present day. Like, several characters have commented on it, and it's never come across in the artwork because they just look like superheroes. And now, suddenly, for the first time ever, I'm noticing that there is a weird digital glow on them in some spots. And I'm like, is that what it's meant to be? Although it's also just on Aquaman's back, and I'm pretty sure that's not a costume. Well, we don't know it isn't. True. It could look like it could look like a normal person under there. It could be like cosplay. <laughs> Speaking of Aquaman of the future, he is now angry. He's like, "Oh, we don't have time for this. Oh, they want to fight." And Superman just says, "Look, the virus is making everyone a bit weird. So I'll just, you know, freeze breath, firestorm. That'll do it." Which apparently he has enough super compressed material in his lungs to snuff out a red giant star, which is quite a claim. Uh, and it's merciful that um, Firestorm isn't pulverised and is merely kind of knocked backwards into a building. Um, and Ray is desperately trying to get something together. Uh, he can't, however, because water is coming from everywhere and surrounding him. And uh, this is a nice little touch. Future Aquaman is uh, manipulating the water in the air to um, basically refract all of Ray's light around inside him so he can't do anything but he does say i recognize your icon you work with light so right off the bat he knows he knows his weakness and yeah i like it It just Mm. it ties into everything i've thought about dc characters is that they are very iconic and avataristic they all kind of represent something elemental in a way yeah and aquaman basically thinks he's ended the fight uh, but then Firestorm's like, oh no, they're crazy. And the Ray says, well, you know, turn the hydrogen atoms back into oxygen, then I won't be covered in water. And Firestorm's like, oh yeah, I can do that. And we get a gnarly shot of Ray bursting free. free. And uh, yeah, I think an ass whooping is coming. Um and sadly, uh, before he can, uh, two massive blasts uh, kind of just crack the ground uh, between Firestorm and Ray and Justice League separating them 
And then, or just his legion, sorry. <laughs> and then flying down from the sky are Jean with his eyes smoking. He's just fired a lot of Martian vision, apparently. Oh, look, and there's Blue Beetle's ship again uh, with its guns also smoking. And Jean just shouts, enough. And Beetle says, yeah, come on, put the testosterone away. And uh, Jean basically says that, look, uh, you know, my shape-changing DNA is containing the virus in my own body. However, all of you are beginning to display symptoms. So you're all going a little bit crazy. But this is, a and he's like, you know, adult voice. This is a rescue mission. It will not descend into a brawl. Do you understand me? And Firestorm's like, oh, yeah, sorry, Jean, I wasn't thinking straight. And, uh, and yeah, crisis averted. And Beetle says, look, we're not at war with the future. This is a bigger problem than that. And then his log entry resumes saying, okay, things are under control at the moment, but I think there's more going on here than we currently know. And we turn the page and, whoa, 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 PJ, what the hell is this? Um, We get um, General Ealing, uh, who is a general in the US Army who is addressing the president via a big screen. And um, he has some mysterious figures behind him who he refers to as the Specialist Ultramarine Corps Unit, who, well, wouldn't it be good if we could field test them? Hmm. Hmm. So this is weird. Um, (laughs) This is our first encounter with General Eiling, and is seeding something to come in the main JLA book. And it's a weird place to put that. I, it, it just feels odd that that's in the DC 1 million book and not another issue, like in the JLA 1 million book or something, which is a, technically part of the actual JLA series. And it feels like space that could have been taken by stuff that's more <laughs> relevant to this story, perhaps? Now, well, indeed, I think space that could have been better allocated could possibly be the subtitle of DC One Million. Um, <laughs> um, however, you're right; this doesn't add anything, but I don't mind it quite as much as some of the other things. If only because I think if you're reading this, it works well enough as a completely throwaway thing because you wouldn't have any reason to believe this would be followed up on no no and it's just i i read so this is going to come up in um the next volume of jla that we look at when we get back to the main book this is this is all relevant but i read that book before i read this book same and it just when you do it in that order it just feels like a it's just a weird way to do it I think, to seed something like that in your event book. And I, you know, I know it's it's Morrison trying to say, hey, you can find out about these guys if you read JLA, but it feels like, I don't mind it particularly if you do read the whole JLA library in sequence and read One Million in its right place, then fair enough. But there's also something about it that makes me think, you know, we've had some clunky exposition here. A couple of extra panels could have helped those. Here's those panels being used for something completely frivolous. Yeah, 
No, it's a fair point. I think... No, I, I agree with you. I agree with you. I, th I think it does less damage to the reveal of the Ultramarine Corps in the next volume than, say, um, Secret Files and Origins 2 did hmm. for uh, the appearance of Oracle. Yeah. In a way. like. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it's interesting because I guess... It's tied into a bit of storytelling development because suddenly this communication is interrupted by Vandal Savage. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Yeah. It's. I, I personally don't mind it in terms of it doesn't damage what comes later. But is it is it relevant and current to the DC 1 million event? No. And yeah, when we've just been bemoaning that we've not seen anything of Solaris you know maybe this maybe this could have been put to better use yeah but as you say vandal savage appears and that is very relevant and he's basically saying i destroyed montevideo ha 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 didn't mean to was meant to destroy the white house my bad i've got to say i do love the way morrison writes vandal savage where maybe i'm reading too much into this but i always get the impression that like vandal savage is obviously uh, a genius, but also a psychopath. But he's also, I think, so very, very, very old that he gets distracted easily. Yeah. Like, in the way that he will often just start a conversation at, like, the midpoint because it's like he's forgotten you weren't there for the first part of the conversation because you are so irrelevant to him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was, but a, yeah, uh, it was the Owlman virus that uh, put his missiles off course. Uh, and can I just say, um, uh, Oracle here, we get a little shot of her reacting, looking shocked, um, with some epically 90s hair. Yeah. <laughs> Big hair. Um, and also, um, I don't mean to, I'm absolutely not trying to be crass here, but if a, if a young John had a, had a type, uh, I would say that Oracle here uh, is very much that type. <laughs> Fair. Fair, yeah. Big hair, glasses. Oh my god, I'm Ray Palmer. <laughs> I've become Ray Palmer as I've gotten older. <laughs> um, hey, nerd girls are hot. Nerd, nerd girls. Are hot. <laughs> yes. Not as hot as Jean, though. Uh, hey, because, nice. Because hey, he's in a fiery on, place. He's in a fiery place. Um, that there, the the league are hearing this as well. I don't know whether it's yeah. with super hearing or radio hearing. Maybe it, maybe Oracle's in communication with them. Oh, that would be it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and uh, Superman of the Future is like, Greg Scott, it's a young Vandal Savage. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> Vandal Savage, who is already millions of years old at this point, and Superman is, it's a young Vandal Savage. <laughs> <laughs> who, um, of course, the, the primary nemesis of Young Justice around this time. <laughs> They did have Lil Lobo. That is true. Yeah. Although I guess young Vandal Savage would actually just be uh, a, a rather cunning Neanderthal child with no superpowers. Yeah, pretty much. There we go. Um, anyway, Jean takes point and is like, um, you know, okay, look, action stations, Ray, Firestorm, enough crap. Like, we have lives, lives to save. And they, they're like, yes, yes, sir. Yes, absolutely. Just like, you know, playtime's over. Yeah, and then 
Aquaman of the future is like, oh, it doesn't matter what we do here. We need to be fighting Solaris and Wonder Woman of the future is like, look, Aquaman, we, we've got this. We can deal with this, which very much feels like present day Wonder Woman and Aquaman's relationship as well. Yeah. Um, and of course, Wonder Woman of the future says, like, it won't be the first time I've had to catch a missile. There have been no mentions of mention of missiles yet. From Vandal Savage. Am uh, I missing he, you that? He, Am I mi- uh, no, no, there hasn't. He just says he destroyed Montevideo. He does mention a computer system caused a guidance failure, so I think they've inferred missile from that. I don't mind this so much. I think we can assume that they are so advanced as superheroes that like, they know when an evil genius probably has missiles. What I like here is the shield that Wonder Woman used earlier to deflect Firestorm's blast is actually her invisible plane, and you see it sort of forming out of the shield. Yeah, sort of growing out of the shield, and then over the page it's formed a very futuristic version of the invisible plane. Yeah, and um, yeah, it's kind of cool. It makes makes a bit more sense than the actual invisible plane. You shut your Um, mouth. Which, of course, we saw in the previous issue. Do you remember yeah. that? Yeah. Love the invisible God. plane. God, yeah. No, talking about space that could have been allocated differently. How dare you? The invisible wow. plane is vital. No, I and I, 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 it's a great scene. Did it belong in DC 1 million? Probably not. Genuinely, um, if we ever do get round to looking at JLA Titans, the Technus Imperative, the invisible plane is key in that story. It, <laughs> Genuinely. <laughs> This is where you're going to dig out the Wong story, where it is absolutely <laughs> integral to the villain's plot. The villain like walks into it at the end, defeated the league, and then they just give themselves concussion. Ah, <laughs> oh, you've read it then. Ah, right. Well, um, but yeah. So, uh, Superman of the future and Wonder Woman of the future, uh, they they blast off. Um, Superman is alarmed because he. He can he can feel gravity now. Yeah. Albeit very slightly. So Egad, his powers are fading. Like it's it's happening quicker and quicker. Um and Randall Savage keeps monologuing, uh, and basically says that um there are three more missiles in orbit which will be dropping on their targets shortly. So So yeah, so that's yeah, so they they were one step ahead of him. Yeah, missiles coming going places, bad. Yeah, and he he also says, it's not a threat, I'm not bargaining, I'm just explaining to you. And he's basically like, by midnight tonight, uh, you're going to have surrendered all of your armed forces to me and the currencies of the world are going to have my face on them. (laughs) Thank you very much. And then uh, Arsenal is also there and breaks free of the guards who are restraining him and leaps at Vandal Savage with a roar and Savage just backhands him into a wall. (sighs) Bless him. Arsenal just ineffective. He's a trier. Yeah, he's a trier. He's also very ineffectual. Um, yeah, I mean, I gotta say, like, I can tell that Morrison enjoys Vandal Savage. I know they've used Savage in a few titles. They mm. pop up Sandal pop uh, Sandal. Why not like <laughs> Sandal Vavage? Sandal, Sandal Vavage pops up in um, Batman. The return of Bruce Wayne when he's lost in time. Oh uh, yes, yeah, I didn't enjoy that story. No, 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 not not the best, not the best installment. But uh, yeah, I, I, there is something to be said for a villain who 
doesn't just want to take over the world, but expressly wants their face on the currency. Like, I think that is a level of megalomaniacal class that you very rarely see nowadays. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of um, the Street Fighter movie where Bison wanted all the world (laughs) to replace their currency with his Bison dollars. I mean, real-life villainy is horrifying. Like, like genuinely, like the, the 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 monstrous people in the world do monstrous, grim, horrible things. What what a wonder it would be to have a a, a comic book supervillain in the world. Like that would make life so much interesting because they. Well, I I, I appreciate that Vandal Savage just nuked a city, but like generally. They they wouldn't just go kill people. Doctor Doom had a certain class to him <laughs> when he was trying to conquer the world. Yep. Oh well. Shame we don't live in a comic book world. Although Arsenal's not enjoying his because he he shouts at Savage, "You killed Garth. You stuck my friend in that thing and burned him." So we can assume that uh, Tempest, formerly Aqualad, was in the first Rocket Red armor that Savage launched. Yeah. Yeah, and maybe a, again, a slight failing of the very nature and concept of the One Million Project, that that is all off-panel, off-page from the... Me- now, maybe if you'd read every title, you would understand, but, like, I don't know. I feel <laughs> yeah. like in this instance there's a reason for it. I'm sure it comes up later in the book. Well, it does. I just assume that... There's a lot of stuff happening in the individual issues which we're not seeing. Mm. I'm thinking ahead, and I know there's a bit where like a lot of the not-teen titans turn up again. And they basically kind of explain how they all escaped, but in different titles. Yeah. 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 Oh, well. Arsenal gets electrocuted by Savage's men, and then just is like, oh, I'm going to get you. But... uh, he gets shoved into another rocket red armor alongside Jesse Quick and Supergirl. And Savage, who apparently lives in the Sphinx at the moment. Like in, you do. Yeah. Says, you know, he's he's learned a lot over his time. He's 700 years ago loaded catapults with the fallen bodies of the Karashmians, fired them over the walls of Samarkand. He gave Hitler some pithy quotes. And now this is his gift of terror for the Superman. And he launches the three Rocket Reds into the air. He's going to blow up some more places. Yeah, and um, I'm kind of grateful that nobody in Egypt was looking at the Great Sphinx at this particular <laughs> moment. Or they, they might have noticed um, the three Rocket Regs kind of erupting. Um, and, uh, yeah, we see, um, Arsenal's stupid face kind of screaming inside. (laughs) Yeah, we do see Supergirl and Jesse Quick in theirs as well, but they're both asleep. Yeah. Well, there we go, PJ. That is the end of, uh, One Million Chapter 2, which is part three of our dc one million recap um i do apologize listeners if you can hear some noises two of my cats are having a confrontation in this very room at the moment so (laughs) vandal savage stop fighting i assume that i assume those are the names of your cats Uh, no it's caliban and scratch Ooh, 
Scratch. It's a good name for a cat. And she does. But PJ, back in comic book world, what are, what are your thoughts? Mixed, honestly. <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. I like it. I do think it's really good. And uh, it's it's a fun book, One Million. Um, when I reread it earlier today, it felt a bit slight. But I think I just, you know, I was on a break from work, so I wasn't concentrating enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so reading it going into it in detail there it it felt it had more impact um certainly and picked up on some stuff there but also through doing it this way picked up on a couple more bits that i felt were slightly clunky and i think that might just be the nature of an event book at this point in time yeah we were both i was kind of convinced before we started recording that this wasn't a full-length issue um but it's close it's 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 close. I counted the pages. Uh, it's 20 pages. So I think for some comics, that was a full-length issue at this point. I think it's telling that even a... Even an average... No, average is the wrong word. Even an, even a passable Morrison book in this era is still better than a lot of the alternatives. Yeah. Like... This is not the best example of Morrison's work. It's not the best example of Morrison's work on JLA, I would say, even. But this is a lot better than that Scarman story. Yeah. And I would still rather read this over, say, JLA Secret Files and Origins 2. Yeah. For example. Yeah. That it's 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 honestly messy, I think is probably on a on a scene-to-scene plot level, it is a messy installment. Um, but there's a lot to like in there as well. I think some of the individual moments are lovely. Yep. Um, I don't know how well it all fits together as a as a story. I wonder if... I think there are two things here. I First of all, I do wonder if Morrison, as we learned last time out, plotting every single DC book that month except one. So that's, what, 63 out of 64 books? Yeah. Again, we we just want to, in, in case anyone thinks, we, we're just pulling that number out of our ass, but that's still, it's a big number, basically. Even if it's 10 less, that's still a lot. You know? Yeah. And if they were plotting that many books in one month, did they really have the time to be doing that, is my, my question there. But I also feel like this issue does suffer a little bit from us not seeing what's going on with the League members in the future. And I know that's being covered in their own one million issues in the week before this, but you need to have key beats of your event in your main event book. You cannot assume everyone's buying everything. I, yeah, I think, yeah, I think that is for fundamental failure. Of a big event, of, of of these big kind of event books. I mean, uh, I think it is unreasonable to expect a a fan. I was going to say a collector, but I think it, it's unreasonable to expect a fan to have to buy every single issue in order to follow the story. I know from a sales and marketing point of view, that is the entire point. Mm-hmm. But I think. 
there are certain events I can think of, like uh, maybe Civil War, maybe um, something like House of M, perhaps, yes. where if you are following the core summer event main book, you will get the full story. But if you, it's like these, but then the secondary issues in individual series, they add flavor to it. They'll add a little extra nuance. Like, it's an ambitious project. Um, I think it is wild to expect it to work, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that the choices of what issues to include in this trade maybe aren't the right ones as well. Um, I don't think we needed that Starman story, if I'm being honest with you. We could have had the full Green Lantern issue instead and just enjoyed a fun Green Lantern story and find out Starman's a traitor at the end of that. We don't need to see Starman picking up the crypto. And again, that's, that moment, like Starman is a traitor, I know we talked about it last issue, is so weird anyway because we get a beat later on in the main story, spoilers everyone, where... Batman accuses Starman of being a traitor. Like, yeah. you, it's so weird because it's like, it's written on the assumption in some places that you haven't read everything. But then in other places, you are completely at a disadvantage because you haven't. It's really, it's really unusual. I wonder if, and this is pure speculation, and I may well be wrong, you know, spreadsheets are everyone's friend, but I wonder if maybe there were moments where Morrison, plotting so many issues, forgot what was going in which issue? There are... It's funny, isn't it? Like, if... There are many... Morrison has... You know, Morrison has their critics. You know, it's not... Um, there are people who, who, who rightly perhaps say that sometimes their work is more kind of concept-driven rather than substance-driven. Now, I, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I think that's one of the chief criticisms. Or, or sometimes that they, they cram too much in. Um, and I think this would be a prime example of someone looking to criticise hmm. Morrison for this. Because I, I, you can't... I can't fault Morrison for having the ambition to try something. I, oh, God, I think no. few few people would. But like it's almost like it could have lost a few things to show other things. It's almost like there's too much going on. Um the counter argument is I do like that Morrison rarely uh insults the reader. Yes. Uh, Morrison does expect you to do a little bit of legwork because they credit you with having the wherewithal to do that. So don't mind that. But like, I keep thinking like, what if I was trying to show this to someone who wasn't as deep into Morrison as we are? I don't think you could give DC 1 million to someone who hadn't as a first Morrison book. Um, you know, it's Morrison at their best is one of the great writers of comics ever when mm -hmm. when they are doing their best work they are up there with the very very greatest the problem for me is morrison isn't always doing their best work sometimes it is as you say just throwing a lot of ideas out without actually having much story to hang on it and i know every story has its fans i do not like final crisis at all for me it is the worst thing i have read that morrison has done none of it works 
but I know it has its fans as well. I know you don't like the current Green Lantern series, but I know that there are people out there who do really rate it. Mm, so I mm, feel fine. like everything Morrison does has its fans as well. I think it's whether you can buy into the idea that maybe they're they're trying to throw at you on that particular story or how how it works for different people. But I I think I would put one million I wouldn't say middling. I think it's better than that, but it's certainly below the the really good stuff. And it's weird, isn't it? Because I can read I for pleasure I can pick up DC one million, read the whole trade paperback and enjoy it. Mm. Like like genuinely I think on a personal level, the good outweighs the bad. Yes, I agree. But the thing about doing this podcast is it has caused us to to kind of like look at things with a bit more of a critical eye. Yeah. And 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 really kind of pouring over it, I can see that it is very clunky. Now, I think it's an enjoyable clunk if you're as a bigger Morrison fan as we are. But this is not. Up there. I mean, you parallel this with something like, um, you know, a real standout being um, the Hell on Earth storyline. Mm. You know, or that moment, the the electric blue Superman moments, um, the Asmodel moment. Like, how well that works as a two-parter, or how well each individual issue works as a concise 22 pages that uses every panel to maximum efficiency... And then you have this, which is definitely not efficient, <laughs> shall we say. It's it I think it suffers from now being seen as part of the same series that includes both Rock of Ages and World War Three. Yeah. Which are two big epic stories told so well and done so well. And then this, which is supposed to be, if anything, bigger, more epic, because this is an event. And yet, it's just not. And, as you know, I don't want to knock it. I don't want to knock Morrison. Even, as I said, the stories I don't like have their fans. And I'm not saying for a second those people are wrong. If you love Final Crisis, more power to you. And I'm glad you got something out of it. Just because I didn't doesn't mean that your feelings on it are invalid at all. But, from, yeah, I, I don't know if anyone would have DC 1 million as their favourite Morrison story. No. I think it, it it holds a bit of a special place in my heart because I thought the series was done. You know, I had yeah. every book in it and I did not think there was more Morrison JLA out there. So I'll always appreciate it for being like this lost chapter. But I think um, it suffers in a weird way for being part of this bigger yes. event. Like I think... Um, it is a wonderful experiment and I'm glad somebody did it. But sometimes an experiment doesn't work and that's fine. And you you move on. Like, I think if this had just been a contained story, like if you had the same page count of this trade paperback and it was all just beginning, middle, end, one story, I think it would have been a lot stronger. Yeah. And 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 maybe Morrison bit off a bit more than they could chew. Maybe they were knackered <laughs> having plotted seventy-eight individual, one hundred and thirty-two individual <laughs> issues in a month. And yeah, like good God, if I'd had to divide my brain into that many parts to try and 
keep everything moving, maybe I wouldn't have a perfect idea of where every plot point was falling yeah. either. But look, that's the negatives. Let's look at the positives. Blue Beetle is great. I love the use of Blue Beetle, and it feels really in character as well. I think Blue Beetle is fantastic in this issue. The Jean moments are superb. Morrison knows Jean really, really well at this point and just can write Jean absolutely beautifully. <laughs> that is, I think, the sign of when you've something is working. Like, you know, when when you know a character is acting utterly true to their nature, mm. it's almost like the writing kind of disappears in a way because you're like, I am not seeing an interpretation of a character, I am seeing that character be be real in a way. And I think you get that with Steel as yes, well. Yes. You know, a great moment with Steel. I think again, like if this were a movie, I would say the shot to shot editing is great. I would say the scene to scene editing is not. Yeah. Because every individual moment is good to pretty good or you know, at most good, at worst, all right, maybe. Like, I think even Firestorm and Ray get some fun stuff to do. Yeah, I, I actually also, I think the moment with Steel is also a really great moment for Barda. Possibly the first great moment Barda has had in this book. That's true. So far. Um, and I think, again, absolutely nails the character. Absolutely perfect. I love it. And Vandal Savage is a great villain for this <laughs> story. He's just so much fun. I know, and again, I realised, I was like, oh, you know, and the classic villains never kill. Now, again, he did just nuke a whole city. Accidentally, it was a, the Hourman virus. I know, and he's about to nuke a few more. Shh! But, but he's a pantomime villain in the he's, best he's, way. He's he's eating that scenery. Like, it is fantastic. He says, this is my gift of terror for the Superman. My God. Like, you know, yes, please. You know, menace my world. You know, this would be great. Um, on a thematic level, I do find it incredibly weird that the plot of One Million revolves around a virus that makes you crazy and aggressive. Yeah. And it's causing wars to break out when that is the entire plot of World War Three. Yeah. Yeah, which does it better. Which does it better. Maybe Morrison wanted to, like, <laughs> This is the dress rehearsal. Right. Yeah, it's very weird. It's very weird to me that two major events focus on the almost the exact same subplot. But, but there we go. As you say, World War Three is much better. We have that to look forward to. But before that, we've got to finish DC 1 million. And I have a horrible feeling that our next episode is going to be another one <laughs> where we're not too keen on things. Yeah. Um, so if you're holding the same trade paperback, we are. We're about to dive into a Batman-themed story, uh, which by the arbitrary rules that we ourselves established, we have to follow, because uh, they deemed it worthy enough to include in this trade paperback. Yeah, it's it's a story from Detective Comics 1 million. It's not a full-length story, but there's also no other sort of smaller vignettes we can do with it. So we are going to have to dedicate a full episode to it. Um, I haven't reread it yet. Maybe I'll enjoy it. But something tells me not so much. I have no yeah. memory of it at all. It's the one thing in this book that I have absolutely no memory of. 
Yeah, it's yeah, it's 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 going to get worse before it gets better. Um, shall we say? Uh, but yeah, I mean, maybe so. Maybe the next episode will be a little lighter, but you know, it's it's just more amazing JLA content, isn't it? Yeah, because so, the or- episode after that is going to be looking at the JLA one million one shot, which I think is probably the high point of the book, if memory serves. <laughs> I would agree. I think um, we're we're kind of in the middle of a downwards. If we saw a graph, um, it started kind of like midpoint. We had a sharp decline. We we've hit a little hill, so we've 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 raised a little. We're, we're dipping again, PJ. We're we're dipping to to a, to a definite low point. We're about to shoot back up again, and then I think it's downhill all the way to the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, we'll probably enjoy DC One Million issues three and four. Yes. Well, look, I mean, it's it's an event comic, so. It, it it makes sense that it has turned into a podcasting event because this will probably be our longest breakdown, I think, yeah. of a particular volume. But we'll get there. We will. You know, get it's there. fine. We it's will fine. Get there. Uh, of course, next episode being a shorter issue, probably going to be a shorter episode. So if you do want to get some mail to us, now is the perfect time because we will have space to fill. Oh yeah, yeah, PJ, you should uh, you should say something really controversial so that um, you can, you'll inflame the listeners Ooh, and they'll have yeah. something. Good to, idea, to good say. idea. I've I got. Okay, you ready? Here we go. Grifter's mask is rubbish. You see, I said say something controversial, not idiotic. Um, <laughs> no one will be able water to take over you, my microphone there, John. N- no one will be able to take you seriously with that statement. Although I would love to hear. Um, personally, I'd love to hear. The other um, supreme co- uh, superhero costume innovations. Yeah, hit us up with what your favorite—not full costume, but like favorite parts of superhero costumes are. Which superhero a had a bit of their costume that made you go, "That particular bit on that arm is really great"? Yeah, God, because I mean, obviously, obviously, Grifter's mask, the Cyclops headpiece. Um, head on fire the, fl- the flaming flaming hair expressly the hair bit I want to say <laughs> and oh heck there was a fourth wasn't there and I've forgotten it PJ help me was it no I can't remember either oh bloody hell if you're listening to this you've you've heard it roll back remind me and then we'll take it from there and i want to throw in i want to throw in a a fifth pj because i can't remember the fourth the short bomber jacket over spandex yes 100 percent, 100 percent. that particularly worn by uh some x-men and some avengers in the early to mid 90s <laughs> yeah oh and the, and the fantastic four for a brief oh god yes well. yeah because never, I would never accuse comics of um, doing something in moderation. Because once they saw a good idea, they ran with it. Basically, <laughs> I remember an issue of Avengers, which opens with a group shot where they're all running out of the mansion, and the only one not wearing one of those jackets is Captain America. You've got Black Widow, Cersei, Black Knight, Crystal, all wearing these jackets, and it's just Cap going, "I don't, I don't need one." Which is weird because I swear I've also seen Cap wearing a jacket at a different point in history. 
God is a strong look, though. Yeah. Ooh. Uh, PJ, I, this reminds me. I haven't mentioned this to you, but we should be shameless and ask our listeners to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. Give us a, a five-star rating and leave us a lovely glowing review because I'm told those things really do help push you up the rankings and then we can get more listeners and then, you know, we'll have to make more of these. They absolutely do. And and we should say that... Um, uh, you know, I, I know, uh, I know. Apple Podcasts, uh, formerly iTunes or whatever the hell they're calling it, uh, is a little old hat nowadays. Many many people might use Spotify or uh, you know other platforms, but um, I think it is at least at present. They're still the only one you can leave reviews on, uh, and uh, yeah, they really they really do make a difference. So yeah, if you, um, we will read out reviews on the air, so maybe. Maybe try and be creative about it. Maybe, maybe, maybe throwing some some quirk. Maybe we'll we'll read out some of the best ones live on air. Give, and uh, here's what we want: we want reviews. We want your favourite superhero costume bits, the bits that just make you go, "Ooh, that's so good!" And we want your questions, and we want you to correct us on the thing we've gotten wrong. Yeah, if you uh, yeah, if you want, and also if you want to get in touch, details are in the description. But uh, contact at bigpunchstudios.com. Although maybe we should set up an inbox that you can actually access PJ because it seems <laughs> yeah, a bit unfair. Yeah, John does get to you know veto the fan mail and and let me know what I can and can't read. Yeah, yeah PJ's PJ's. I know PJ's a sensitive heart, so like. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I I purposefully don't send him all the hate mail. Like, guys, <laughs> look, we know he's wrong about Grifter. We don't need to rub his nose in it, okay? I'm never wrong about Grifter. But PJ, have we exhausted this avenue of pleasure? I believe we have. If anything, we've outstayed our welcome. Yeah. Well, you know, on that note, maybe I should give one million thanks to Gav Mitchell for drawing our incredible cover artwork. Seems like an arbitrary number, but sure. I'll <laughs> give Elliot Red a million thanks for composing and performing our wonderful theme tune, Justice. And if you enjoy uh, listening to PJ and I kind of ramble on about all manner of things, uh, yeah, you can find us on social media where um, we, we try to be pleasant most days. And uh, yeah, our details are in the description as well. Uh, PJ, is there anything you'd like to shout about? Anything anything interesting happening in the world? Uh, yes. Yes. A certain Mr. John Locke has written a video game that you'll be able to buy soon. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Bloody hell, I did. Um, yeah, so... Yeah, I forgot about that, PJ. Thank <laughs> you. Um, yeah, so um, there is a uh, a little game called Spectacular Sparky coming to Switch... Um, the other one, the Epic Games Store and Steam on the 20th of October. And uh, yeah, it is a wild, uh, random throwback 2D platformer shoot-em-up in the style of Sonic meets, I don't know, Metroid, maybe something with a gun. Um, Gunstar Heroes? Yes, Gunstar Heroes. Yes, I've heard that reference by the developer, but yes, this has been made by an old school school uh, an old school friend of mine uh, called Sam, who goes by Freak Zone Games, 
and it is being published by uh, Nicholas or Nicarlis, the company that did Binding of Isaac, Cave Story, and many other kind of indie darlings. So, yeah, like I've I've been working on this on and off for about four, three or four years, maybe. <laughs> um, to put it into into context, I wasn't married. And I was working in my previous job when I started working on this. So that's how long it's taken. But yeah, it's finally seen the light of day. And uh, yeah, it's exciting. It's going to be cool to see it out in the world. I am definitely buying it. It looks like a lot of fun. Do you know, probably uh, the coolest bit about it was, do you know Sean Barrett, PJ? Oh, the name does ring a bell voice actor uh voiced a load of english dubs of anime uh from uh in the 80s uh he was also on father the father yes. ted christmas Dull voice special. priest yes yeah which again <laughs> is probably like the most british reference in the world um he was in uh return to oz uh starfleet um yeah, well, basically, and also in, in video games, he is Andre the Blacksmith from the Dark Souls series. <laughs> and apparently he's very, very hard to find because he's he's a private man. But um, Sam was able to track him down and approach his agent and ask if he would voice uh, a character in the game. Amazing. And he did. And he did. And I, I, I got to write dialogue for Sean Barrett and he apparently found it funny. Which is which is enjoyable, which which is very nice. So I'm quite excited to to see that out in the world. That's amazing. That's just another reason for me to buy this game. Um, oh heck, well you use your space to say something nice about me, so I <laughs> I need to kind of say something nice about you. Don't feel like you have to if it's going to be that no. much effort. No, I have to, PJ. Um, your other podcast, PJ. What's what's happening in the world of um your 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 Star Trekking? The Measure of a Fan is, uh, as we record currently on hiatus between seasons one and two, we finished season one of Enterprise, we're going to start season two of Enterprise very soon and start releasing episodes again, but yeah, now would be a great time to try and catch up. We're doing a chronological watch through of all of Star Trek, so starting with Enterprise as it's the earliest set series. It's myself and comedian Matt Troy, two big Star Trek fans, watching it with Elliot Red, who... A, composed our theme tune, B, composed that podcast theme tune, and C, is my baby brother, and making him watch it all. He has never watched Star Trek before, and we're having a lot of fun with it, even though we're doing Enterprise at the moment. And it's a, it's a fun fact, but Elliot can only communicate in uh, kind of sick riffs, oddly enough. <laughs> he, does, he doesn't use conventional language as we would refer to it. It's, he's, it's only tunes. He's got a SoundCloud that I, I recommend people check out, actually. He's reworked a lot of classic theme tunes. His most recent one was a reworking of the theme tune to ER. Uh, both the <laughs> JLA cast and Measure of a Fan theme tunes are available on there as well for you to listen to, and all sorts of other tunes he's done. He's a very talented musician, and I recommend everyone and check out his SoundCloud. Indeed. Um, wait, yeah, I can't remember. Do I link to... Oh, no, now I'm feeling cautious. Hang on. Yes, indeed. We do. We, In fact, we link to Elliot Red in the description, so you can you can check that out below. Um, but PJ, I mean, we've, we've said a lot of very nice things now, both about the book and about each other. Um, is there anything left to say, or should, uh, or should we 
we just uh, wrap it up with a, a trademark PJ finale. I'm going to wrap it up with this one little thought. John's been drinking whiskey tonight. You don't need to drink whiskey to be cool. John's not cool. Don't be like John. Yeah, I'm radical. <laughs> 